Kepanam Horm Jelaich Rekodu, Neutzer Remakots Kugarmi Regawak, Mukut Jazinolk. Welcome to Khan Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Manis. Hello. Uh, and with me down the road a ways in the other direction is uh, uh, Matthew Boutillier. Is that Hello. Right? What? Hello. Hello. Yes. Matthew, is that the right way to pronounce your name? I did not get that at first. Well, the, the French-Canadian uh, side of the family tends to say Boutillier. So well, they're actually they're the English-speaking French Canadians. So we say Boutelier, we don't say it Boutelier or anything fancy like that. Okay, Boutelier, Matthew Boutelier. Okay, that's fine. That works for me. Good. He is also a uh, a grad student here in Madison, but we grabbed him for this because of our topic because he's recently studied the language in question. Mm-hmm. I'm in the German department. I do historical linguistics, historical Germanic stuff mainly, but. For the past, like, five years or so, I've been really into modern Irish of, like, various dialects, getting into that. And I think about a year ago, I started working on old Irish on my own and just really, really got into it. So that's my background in this topic. Yeah, and so that's that's uh, what we're going to be talking about um, uh, as we get into it. Before we started, I really have, I really wanted to, um, George has a TV recommendation, just... Uh, out of the 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 blue this is something i've been watching on netflix i'm not through the whole season yet but it's uh i think it's good uh it's a tv series called clever man it's a story set in australia after an event where these creatures from um aboriginal mythology called the from from the dreamtime stories uh called the hairy people just like people find out that they're real and they you know come onto the scene and that the whole series it's kind of dark and it's kind of violent so um uh which is one reason I haven't uh seen more of it cuz I can't watch it with the baby around um, <laughs> but um uh no no conlang component but an an interesting linguistics component is the the hairy people speak uh an australian aboriginal language uh kumbangar so that's a just a suggestion for people who yeah, it's, might it's, be interested hmm? it's kind of like urban fantasy but instead of elves and vampires it uses um australian aboriginal background Right, uh, like the main character is a uh, clever man, which is sort of a Aboriginal spiritual guide. It's following, well, it's following a bunch of characters, but one of the characters in a, is the clever man. And there's the hairy people, and there's another creature that I won't go too much into because spoilers. Right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that is a suggestion uh, for all y'all. You you go. Check that out. But, uh, as we said before, we're not going to be talking about any um, Australian languages today. Maybe in a 
Have I've we got... done any Australian languages before? One. We sh- Well, maybe we should do another one. Cause <laughs> but today we are going to Ireland. And we are going to talk about Old Irish, sometimes known as Old Gaelic or uh, Goizelg. Uh, if I pronounce that correctly, I never know with Irish. Very but, good, right? <laughs> well, you never know with Irish. <laughs> the there we we'll get into this. There there are actually some things we don't know how exactly they were pronounced in Old Irish, but um, that's that's just a a side thing. Um, and Matthew, since you have spent all this time studying old irish i'm going to just sort of let you run the show and get us started so why don't you introduce us to old irish uh sort of um i I guess most people will know what where well just go over over you know uh all the 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 basic typological stuff and historical stuff just uh a brief introduction here Mm mm-hmm Okay, well, Old Irish is, of course, an Indo-European language. It's in the Celtic family. It's on the the Q-Celtic side of the the P-Celtic-Q-Celtic divide, which which is how insular Celtic is traditionally divided, although I think continental Celtic shows like a similar dichotomy. But anyway, so let's see. What else can we talk about? I would mention briefly that it took people until well into the 19th century to determine that Old Irish and Irish in general was, in fact, Indo-European. Yes. Well, it can be pretty – that fact can be pretty opaque uh, sometimes just if you're if you're trying to find cognates among, you know, verbs, Irish verbs versus other Indo-European verbs, for example, because between Old Irish and – between pre-Old Irish and Old Irish and modern Irish, you know, crazy sound things have been going on and, and, and morphemes being compressed together that really obscure – a lot of the, you know, the lexemes of Irish, the Indo-Europe, the inherited Indo-European stock. So, you know, to the point where a lot of it's not recognizable. But of course, you know, if you look in the right places, it's it's pretty easy to see that it is Indo-European. Old Irish has the same uh, masculine, feminine, neuter gender division that we find across, you know, most of the older Indo-European languages, unless, you know, you go back too far. Um, although modern Irish has, just like the Romance languages, simplified that down to masculine and feminine. Okay. Um, just a really quick uh, thing. Can you explain really quick what's P-Celtic versus Q-Celtic? Just just uh, so that listeners know. Right. So in the Indo-European phonological system, you have a series of sounds that are like, you know, the qua sounds, basically, like you would spell with, you know, Q in modern English. So qua Gua, and depending on whether they remained qua or gua in you know the daughter languages, if they if if they remained like that, then it's we call it a Q Celtic language. But in a lot of Celtic daughter languages, that sound turns qua turns into p, gua turns into b. Actually, gua turning into b is uh, is everywhere. But qua turning into p is a thing that we do not associate with Irish or with the Gaelic languages, the Q-Celtic languages, but rather with, you know, Welsh, uh, Breton, Cornish, those languages. Okay. The P-Celtic languages. So it's it's really based on how this one Indo-European sound was reflected 
It's interesting because I think in, in Italic and in the Italic languages, you have the same thing. So like Latin is Q Italic, for example. So all the question words start with qua, like quid or qui or quo or whatever. But there are other attested, you know, extinct Italic languages that have a P in all of those places. So which, you know, may or may not have to do with the fact that the Italic languages and the Celtic languages are supposedly more closely related than, you know, more recently diverged from each other than other Indo-European daughter language. I did not know that. Uh, so I, I, I knew a little bit about the, the P and Q Celtic. Uh, I just wanted you to explain for listeners, but I didn't know that that happened in Italic. But anyway, let's let's get further into Old Irish. So okay. there are a few things that you'll find in Old Irish um, that you we kind of should already expect knowing this is a Celtic language, since we've covered um, Welsh before, I believe. Or it was Middle Welsh, right? Yeah, yeah, Middle Welsh. Um, so they have the inflecting prepositions, right. and they have the, um, the, uh, the, the consonant mutations. Why don't we get started a little bit? Um, we'll get... A, a heavy use of verbal nouns uh, is also, I, I believe, shared with Welsh. So... You know, especially particularly in modern Irish, but also very clear in old Irish, rather than using, you know, an inflected verb, you'll just use like some sort of auxiliary verb, meaning like, you know, I am and then like I am on somethinging to say to say that you're, you know, in the process of you're currently doing something. Mm -hmm. I know modern Welsh that does that. I'm sure middle Welsh did that, too. Right. So. And once we start to talk about what happens to inflected verbs, you'll understand why. Yeah. Oh my God, it, it's quite clear. Yes, it's it's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. So so just getting started. First of all, phonologically, there's this distinction between broad and slender, which seems to be mostly actually palatalization. So that's a there's a a um, mm-hmm. a language specific terminology. Uh, alert for you the broad and the slender mm-hmm. i think but the slenders most of them are paddleized yes um though there you know there's some things we don't really know how they were pronounced and such um, right they're all historically palatalized in some way but so for example you know a, a palatalized p versus a non-palatalized p so p versus p or something but so in the case of s you have the non-palatalized S is S, but the palatalized S goes all the way back to sh, so something maybe post-alveolar. So not not necessarily palatal, but yeah, it that's that's where it falls in the palatalization pattern. Mm-hmm. And you have the famous constant mutations for uh, for Old Irish. You have um, a, a regular form, a what's called a nasalized form which uh, it seems like it can be like pre-nasalized or it can just be voicing a voiceless sound. That's exactly right. These, these, these names, this name nasalization isn't really consistent in, as in what it means across the board. So for a, for a voiceless stop, for an unvoiced stop like P or T or K, it means that sound becomes voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but for like a, like a B or a D or a G, uh, it basic in modern Irish a b turns into m so b turns into m mm-hmm. so something turns into like its nasal stop counterpoint historically in old Irish 
that was really like B with, like you said, like pre-nasalization. So sort of preceded by an M because of, because a following word ended with an nasal sound. And then that got in, sort of internalized as reanalyzed as part of the following word. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it started as nasal assimilation with pre-nasalization and then you ended up with, um, with a voiced sound basically. And then right. you have, the last one is uh lenited which uh it's it varies a lot but it's it's often turning things into fricatives but it's like it's a little bit all over the place uh, right. s s turns into h for <laughs> yes. some reason basically uh this is so this lenition sound change the uh, initial mutation we call them initial mutations but really historically these happened whenever a consonant was between two vowels. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically there was just the sound change that S turned into H was, you know, debucalized, if you want to call it that, whenever it was between two vowels. Now, if there was like a previous sort of proclitic preposition or something that ended with a vowel, then that means that, you know, words starting with S, that S is going to be between two vowels. It's between the vowel ending the previous word and then it's between the following vowel. So that S is going to turn into an H. And it looks like an initial music mutation, but it's actually, you know, the resulting from being between two vowels. Right, right. Historically, that's where it comes from. And it, but the the s turning to h is a, an unusual case. There's others like m turns into like a nasalized v. How would you even say that? That's kind of a weirder one. And uh, but d just becomes the right. B becomes the. There the other odd one. Odd ones are eight F just gets mm-hmm. deleted. Right. Right. And yeah. um uh H doesn't do this stuff right. H is um there's a there's a site another change that's aspiration, right? Right. So the well the aspiration change is basically just if a following if the fo- okay, so there are following words, certain following words like or sorry, certain preceding words uh trigger this aspiration, it's called aspiration, but it basically means the insertion of an H. Right. So H is, is not really part of the mutations. It's a different change. Right. It's H insertion. H um, isn't really an, an independent sound in Old Irish. It is really, it just exists as the lenited form of S. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we get this H insertion, what it actually is, is the insertion of like an S at the end of a previous word. So if some preposition ended with S and then the following word starts with a vowel, well, you got an S between two vowels and that turns into an H. And so it looks like you're, you're sticking an H on front of the next word, but what you're actually doing, that H re- reflects the S that used to be there. So, like, so, but the H, H is in the orthography, right? <laughs> yes, although the orthography is less helpful uh, than you might think. So H is used... <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth for Irish. The orthography is less helpful than you might think. Yeah. So when you see an, an independent H, and by independent I mean, you know, H followed by a vowel, say, and not part of a digraph. Because H was used as part of digraphs, you know, here and there in Old Irish, basically the same way that we use it in, in modern English with F for PH and F for TH. But anyway, if you see an H by itself, um, like H followed by vowel, uh, where was I going with this? Um, so either if you get that in the orthography, either 
there's really no, there's no H there, but the scribe just didn't want to start the word with a vowel, but there is zero, there's no phonological H there. <laughs> or that's actually how, seriously, they just, so, they just liked writing H's. Or that's actually like the, the aspiration mutation. Right. So there's just aesthetic H's in there sometimes. Yes. Just because, it's quite because frustrating. The scribes don't like to start words with vowels. That's yeah. funny. Which they, they sometimes do, but sometimes, yeah, there's this there's this revulsion to just starting a word with a vowel. So it's real. It's totally meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are talking here about Old Irish, which presents an array of spelling nightmares. Oh my god! Irish should never have been spelt with the Latin alphabet. Yeah. Truer words were never spoken. So the Um, problem is really what George was saying. The two things, I mean, there's this, there's this, so the lenition mutation is really like a smaller instantiation of this bigger, like creation of all these new fricatives when when sounds were in between new vowels. Um, So there's that, you get a lot of new sounds from that. And you also get a lot of new sounds. You get basically double the sounds through this palatalization change where Every sound gets like a new, it's new. Every phoneme gets its, it's, you know, alter ego phoneme that is palatalized. And so the Latin alphabet is just not built to handle that. And so that is what makes uh, old Irish orthography just so chaotic. But it, it had, it was written in Latin for a long time before it was written in Latin. I will say for the script nerds, there is another writing system in Old Irish, the the Ogham writing system, mm-hmm. right? That's Which... right. Ogham is awesome. It's even it's even worsely uh, adapted to 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 write Irish, I think. But it is really cool. Yeah, it's it's um. There's a baseline that can be horizontal or vertical, and then there's both perpendicular lines and sort of diagonal lines. And uh, even some some fun little like cross things for some of the diphthongs, but yeah, um, yeah. That that middle that horizontal or vertical line was typically like the edge of some like a stone monument normally, and so you just like going up the, this edge of a stone monument, you get like lines going off to the left or to the right or little notches in the middle, and it was kind of like um, like Morse code or something because if you had like Two lines to the left, it'd be one thing. If you had four in a row consisting one letter, it'd mean another thing. And so it's it's kind of hard to read because sometimes it's hard to tell to see where the actual letter divisions are. But I think it looks pretty cool. Yeah. The the so back to the question of spelling Old Irish. Right. Very often when you see a vowel, and this is true of modern Irish as well, and and you know modern Scots Gaelic, mm-hmm. unless you already know the word. It may not be obvious whether that vowel is there because it's a vowel in the word mm-hmm. or if it's there to tell you how the nearby consonant is pronounced, whether it's palatal or not. Right. I think that modern Irish is an even worse offender with this because they really adhere strictly to that rule. Um, I can't remember what the Irish name for it is, but it means like slender vowels next to slender consonants and broad vowels, meaning velar vowels next to broad consonants. Right. So Old Irish still does that pretty heavily, but it's really it, it's actually not as bad as modern Irish. So it doesn't look quite as as vowel-y, but but we still have that. 
And a really interesting thing, because palatalization is so important, um, there are a lot of schwas in Old Irish, but of course there's no schwa vowel that they wrote with. So typically you'll get the schwa vowel in, you know, some like syllable close to the end written with an A if the if if both neighboring it so the schwa can be written in a bunch of different ways depending on whether the neighboring consonants are palatalized or not. Right. If, it'll be an A if they're both non-palatalized, it'll be an E if the first one is palatalized but the second one isn't. It'll be an I if they're both palatalized, and it'll be an AI if the first one is not palatalized and the second one is palatalized. And this is actually, I mean, the script is really, the orthography historically is all over the place, but they did adhere to this, like, somewhat regularly. This is something that I've actually looked for in the text. And so they 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 really try to show palatalization more so than they even, like, try to show other things in the orthography, I think. so. Right. And... It- if you have any of the, the the decent modern instruction on Old Irish in particular, it's always going to show you reconstructed historical forms to explain why mm-hmm. the, decl- the declension is so weird. Right. Um, is usually enough to tell you what vowels are doing what job. Because mm-hmm. you'd be yes. like, oh, well, that ended in an I, so that's probably likely that that little I there is telling me that this following consonant is palatal, not that exactly. I pronounce it like an I. Exactly. If you know that historically the dative ending for this thing had like a long I at the end, but now like after the sound change of losing all final vowels, the only remnant of that is that the final consonant is still palatalized. Um, so, you know, if you, it might not always be reflected in, in the actual text in the orthography, but if there's an I before that last consonant, you know, that's your only hint that this is maybe the dative. Right, right. So, um, and, and this is another important feature of Old Irish and might be interesting to people who like historical processes. Basically, the rule for a syllable is the further you stray from the stress accent, the more likely you are to be crushed. Oh, my God. Yeah. So <clears throat> in, entire syllables were chopped off the ends of words. Um, there's a marvelous verb form that involves suffixing a consonant, which produces a consonant cluster. And they're like, well, we hate that. And so the entire cluster is deleted. The whole cluster is gone. So you have actually some verb forms where the only thing left of what you and I would usually consider the verb is the initial consonant. (laughs) Right. You'll have, you'll have like the, if originally you had like the prefix and then, you know, the stem, and then you'd stick like 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 an aorist marking S in there or something, or a future marking S. Um, the S is going to mix in with all of the whatever the stem final consonants are, and they're all going to become S, which means that after lenition, they're all going to become H and basically drop out. And now you've got you've got a prefix, and then the first vowel, the first consonant of the stem, and then some vowel, and then sometimes that vowel is lost. So it's just it's insane. So so. <laughs> Let's transition to the verb, the most terrifying part of the Irish language. Yes, yes. Yeah. Let's definitely so, talk about verbs. So the thing that's important to know, and the, the Wikipedia article on this is actually pretty good, and the, the, the free grammar that you can find on archive.org, which is a little bit old but still pretty good by, what's his name, um, O'Connell, mm. are, are pretty good about this, but you don't just learn a single, this is the present tense of this verb. Like many Indo-European languages, Irish loves pre-verbs. 
And by pre-verbs here, I mean things like under in understand or with in withhold, things that look like prepositions that are slammed onto verbs to generate new meanings. Mm-hmm. Latin did this. Ancient Greek did this. Sanskrit did this. Avestan did this. And Old Irish did this as well. Um, and with gusto, not just one preverb, but there might be quite a pileup. In addition to the pileup of preverbs for meanings, some tense and aspect forms are require another preverb. Yes. So what you've got is verbs with a strong recessive accent, and every time a preverb is added, the accent moves back one. Mm-hmm. Until everything else just sort of condenses into this soup. Right. And, and you so, know, you have to remember, so you have to, so I feel like you, you need to learn sort of three different languages. You need to learn sort of proto-Celtic, and then you have to think about where everything went to primitive Irish, which is sort of, is what Oum was used to write, the stage before Irish, but with all the lenition and stuff. And then, and then actual old Irish with some more changes, because with the verb, I mean, you really need to be, if you're reading it as a non-native speaker, you need to be conscious of all these morphemes that are just like hidden in there. Um, and some of them are left as just like, you know, one letter or even the, the palatalization on some letter. And it's because of the result of all of these, you know, this lenition and syncope, you know, vowels dropping and then things smush into each other and you assimilate voicing assimilation, you know, devoicing assimilation and everything just piles together. Like you said, the farther it is from this, the, the, the sort of bump in the second syllable, which is where the stress is. I envision it sort of like a camel, um, is where like the hump is. (laughs) And then everything just goes downhill from there. Right. So, you're learning a simple conjugation. You have to learn what's typically called the conjunct form, and that's the verb form that has had the accent shifted due to a preverb. It's important to know that in addition to like preverbs that change meanings, mm-hmm. simple negation requires right. this conjunct form, and it's basically glommed together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it works exactly the same way. Right, and certain conjunctions. So, yeah. The interesting thing of... Sorry. I was just going to say... Uh, we have reason to believe that in some parts of Indo-European, at least, verbs were all enclitic. They had no accent of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, this really pops up in Vedic. Certain weirdnesses of ancient Greek seem to explain this. And it looks like Irish just ran with this idea. Yeah, it's amazing that the stress could be so far from the stem itself. I mean, the verb stem is like so far off to the right with all of these, you know, so to speak, with all these preverbs piled on. It's... I don't know. What's interesting also is that the modern Irish, basically, um, modern Irish verbs always reflect like this. They come from this conjunct form. Um, So the the form of the verb that was like ready to have a preverb stuck on the front and not from from the sort of independent standing form, um, which is why modern Irish verbs are so difficult to you know, be likened to uh, to their other Indo-European cognates because they've got all these preverbs stuck on there, but they're still so short and succinct that you can't really tell that there's any preverb there, but there is. Right, right. Uh, I, I can see, you know, you, you're talking about uh, everything being sort of shifted away from the root of the verb, but mostly what we're talking about is that Old Irish really, really strongly prefers initial stress accent. Right. And so it's just it's just a 
like everything else is falling out from this preference for a very strong stress accent, followed up by, you know, a whole bunch of sound changes that uh, occur when something's unstressed. Right. The, 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 the famous statement about Old Irish from some grand old man of Indo-European is that learning Old Irish is like mowing the lawn. It's something you have to do periodically. And it's because of the need awesome. to keep all of this in track, in mind, um, and the complications that come from this. What's weird about Old Irish is archaic Irish looks more recognizably Indo-European and Middle Irish said this is insanity and regularized all sorts of things. But it just so happens that this grand period of Old Irish literature, of the writing down of poetry and stories and law and music, um, happened in this extremely phonetically unsettled period of the language. Yes, we, we caught them at just the right time, just before everything was kind of getting you know, revamped and renovated and people were figuring out that this verb system is way too complicated. Let's simplify things. So it's really, it's really interesting from a historical perspective, but it's also extremely chaotic and it's extremely hard to read because like the order um, that certain pre-verbs take is sort of, you know, prescriptive in one way um, if you go further back in the language. But if, if it's, if you have certain particles where they're, you know, supposed to go, it just the whole thing gets really messy and hard to understand. And so you can see in later texts, like certain particles get placed in different or in a different order because, you know, and everything's just being reordered. So it's crazy. And you never know what to expect when you're when you before you encounter a particular verb form. Right. And then I guess the, the last one of the preverbs is they can be separated from the verb stem by mm-hmm. object pronoun forms. Right. Some of which... object pronouns are really cool, but this of course shows, you know, that the preverbs and the verbs were originally like very separate, which of course from Indo-European we know and everything. Right. But... Right. But the the object pronouns can get shoved in the middle and mm-hmm. sometimes that object pronoun is only reflected in a mutation. A mutation, of course. So, yeah, so that's great. And guess what? Sometimes that mutation is not reflected in the orthography. Even better. Sometimes the the third person, uh, I think, neuter, uh, third person neuter singular object pronoun is just represented as lenition, um, the lenition of the, you know, the following consonant, but you can't, depending on the letter, you can't always tell. If it's a G, if it's a G, you can't tell what from the text generally whether that's lenited to G. You just can't tell. So, so you have to infer where there, where there are object pronouns sometimes. Right. Do you have anything else to say about those verbal nouns? Not the verbal nouns. I mean, I don't know how historical you got with, with the Middle Welsh or really how historical we need to be. But I think the, the verbal nouns are really cool just in how they're formed. Because, you know, Indo-European, like anybody who's taken Latin or Greek knows that Indo-European has all these different noun classes, which basically come from different stem extensions. And, Indo- and Old Irish and I guess Celtic in general has found just a ton of different ways to create these verbal nouns for their verbs, which they all sort of serve the same purpose. Like you can use all the verbal nouns in the exact same way, but they all just look so different from each other. And there's no way to, you know, know how a particular one is going to be created. And of course, uh, uh, just unlike infinitive, which is perfectly regular in Latin, 
modestly regular in Greek and out the out the window um, in Vedic. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, they're just they're they're they look like regular nouns. And of course, if a if a verbal noun corresponds to a verb that has two or three preverbs, then the verbal noun is going to have those preverbs as well. And the verbal noun is going to have word initial stress. And so you're going to get all of those crazy changes that where everything gets sort of crunched together, which is why some of these verbal nouns have multiple preverbs, but they're really like short and concise. Right. So as we're saying, old Irish caught at sort of a weird period in history. Um, I don't know if you're eager to produce a language that is really, really hard for second language learners to figure out. Um, but if you are, <laughs> um, there are various things you can do. The uh, Any good Irish, uh, old Irish grammar, like this O'Connell one, these old ones, have nice big chunks at the start on historical stuff. Um, probably some of it's out, out of date, but for creative purposes, who cares? So let's talk a little bit more about how those mutations are exactly formed and how you might want to use them yourself. Yeah, I know that a lot of, or I've met a lot of conlangers anyway, who are interested at least in the idea of doing something like initial mutations in their language. Because, you know, we all know languages where you make changes at the end of a word to change its, its change the meaning somehow, but you know, it's kind of a novelty for a lot of people that you can do similar things at the beginning of a word and have a similar effect. And I think it's pretty cool. Um, I know that Tolkien did that in at least one of his languages. Um, so it's something that's, you know, that has premiered in the conline community before. Um, should we, I mean, should we just talk about how you could go about doing that, like, historically? Or, I mean, sure. if, if people are working on, like, a historical background for their like an, a historical evolution of their conlang? Absolutely. Which we often recommend if you're going naturalistic, so... Right. Or at least, you know, to have some idea of where the initial where the initial mutations come from. Not necessarily to, you know, have a whole earlier stage of the language, but, you know, it's good to have an idea of where they come from, I guess. Mm-hmm. And basically, the initial mutations in Celtic, well, we talked about... Um, nasalization, or uru as it's called in Irish, or lenition, or shevu as it's called in Irish. And so uru, the nasalization, which is really like, these are terrible names for these things because they're not really consistently used to describe like the actual sound changes that they're happening, but they're really just to describe like the patterns. Nasalization is a set of mutations and lenition is a set of mutations, even though it's not always phonologically the same kind of mutation across the board. Does that make sense? Yes. So nasalization is basically the result of a, the preceding word, um, frequently like a preposition, like Indo-European N for like in, inside, um, that ends with an N, or words that end with M do the exact same thing. So if you have, you know, the word in, a preposition in, followed by some noun that begins with P, first of all, the N at the end of the preposition is going to assimilate into an M. It's going to take on the labial quality of the P. Um, so then instead of in P, you have M P. And then basically you have this um, change that I think Welsh, I think the P Celtic must have done this at the same time too, but 
The P-Celtic and Q-Celtic mutations are really kind of similar and parallel, but they're also like really different in some ways, so I'm, I'm never sure. But anyway, in Irish, what happened was the, the MP sequence sort of combines and turns into a B. Um, and this doesn't just happen across like word boundaries like this. Um, so the word for 100 in Irish is Cade and ending with a D, which is like, you know, Kentum in Indo-European. So NT turns into D, MP turns into B, NK turns into G. And so that's basically where that, that the nasal mutation comes from. Um, if you if you have a if your original word started with a B, then you know you get the N assimilating to an M, and you'd have M B, and then M B actually in a separate sound change was sort of simplified to to a double M. Okay. Now, Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And one thing about these initial mutations is, like just about any sound change, if if you want it to be, you know, it's one thing for these mutations to be conditioned mm-hmm. by the preceding preposition and the and that environment stays there. It's it's another thing once that environment is removed. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's fun is if you look at these great grammars of old Irish, and I assume good ones of new uh, modern Irish, um, you're looking at a noun declension, which looks pretty standard, but there are going to be some sort of notation telling you what sort of mutation will follow that form. So if we just took, you know, look at a simple O stem neuter in Irish, even though the 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 N ending is missing, there's still a little N there telling you that the following word is going to get a nasal mutation mm-hmm. in the nominative. In the genitive um, it's There's a little L. The little L. It's going to linnet. Uh, if the because accused, that form used to end in a vowel, even though that vowel is gone. Now. Even though the vowel is gone, because we know Old Irish said all final vowels bye bye. And again, for the accusative, the N comes back. So, so is, yeah, so that's even more widespread in Old Irish than it is. At, you know, in Modern Irish, this the, the mutations are restricted to to certain you know, like with prepositions or whatever it is. But a lot of times in Old Irish, this stuff happens like across whole phrases. And it's almost comparable to like so, like Sunday that happens in Sanskrit, where it's just these words are next to each other. So, you know, the sounds are going to interact. What's great, sort of. though, is this is Sunday with sounds that are no longer there. Right. It's, it's right. amazing. So, and and it makes for sort of an interesting grammatical thing partly because you have the grammatical information on, uh, in the case we were describing, the nouns being marked on the next word. Right. In addition to whatever changes are happening to the word. Yes. Yeah. Especially in Old Irish, you will get a lot of, like, internal changes in the noun itself, of course, across an inflection, and the inflections can get really complicated sometimes. But it is really interesting that a lot of times to distinguish between, like, the nominative and the genitive or the, you know, genitive plural or accusative plural or whatever, the only clue you have is the sound that the next word starts with, which is why it's so, like William was talking about, like, in these grammars, when they write the paradigms, they'll write like a little superscript N or a little for nasalization or a little superscript L for lenition, just to remind you that that's part of the inflection. That is like innate to the nominative singular, you know, that N in that form. 
it's not the nominative singular if the next form does if the next word whatever it is doesn't undergo nasalization. Right. That's part of that's part of the the inflection is to change something about the next word. Hmm. This is yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like some of these uh we've talked before about some languages of Africa in particular where you had a word some connector, some grammatical word, and now the only thing left about it is a tone change somewhere. Mm. Right. Um, and this is the same sort of thing. Sounds that are missing, <laughs> um, yeah. but a sound change becomes part of the underlying form of the word and must be remembered to correctly use it uh, in a larger construction. Right. Uh, and this is true for verb forms. This is for, true for... Nouns and pronouns and, of course, prepositions and all sorts of fun things. Right. So th that's the, the, the thing, the clue for, uh, for conlangers, I think, for people who want to play with this, is if you're going to want these sort of a natural kind of mutations, um, you don't have to just copy the Celtic mm -hmm. ones, but you need to come up with what happens when this kind of sound occurs between two vowels. Right. And think about that. Mm -hmm. Think about sandhi. Um, and then run through some sound changes that might delete some stuff, and voila, you've got initial mutations. Right. Um, Whatever yeah. sound changes you happen to be working on or thinking about, like, word internally, just look for places where they might affect, like, a preposition following, you know, uh, following its noun, if you're taking those two together. Like, could that sound change affect, like, if, it, if, if you allowed it to sort of cross that border, you know, what interesting effects would it have and if it has like a cool effect then you know you could consider you could make that like become part of the grammar in a future stage of the language and and that is like an initial mutation that becomes like codified in the grammar yep right yeah it it, it can be anything to there are sound changes that stay internal to the word and sound changes that that cross word boundaries but there's not really any that much of a a difference in what kinds of sound changes can happen, you could have all sorts of things, and it couldn't. It, you know, in in Old Irish, we've got certain specific changes to an initial consonant that are happening because of this. You could have all kinds of things. We mentioned you can have a tone change happen. You can have uh, sometimes vowel harmony crosses uh, word boundaries. Uh, you. Usually it's sort of limited in the way it crosses word boundaries, but it can happen. You could have different kinds of consonant changes. So instead of the nasalization and uh, lenition things, you could have uh, maybe a gemination rule that kicks in, uh, a, a, a place assimilation rule that kicks in. You could do a lot of different things with this basic concept that we see in Celtic languages of uh, of uh, a historical Sunday rule mm -hmm. that became grammaticalized. Yeah, it doesn't have to be like, you know, in Gaelic and Irish, we have like nasalization, quote unquote, and then lenition, which is, you know, things basically things becoming fricatives between vowels. But you nasalization is frequently means like voicing, but you could have something where it's like unvoicing or... I mean, any kind of like fortition instead of lenition, whatever whatever that means for your language. So it, it's anything is possible. Yeah. Um, do we want to 
Is there anything else that we think is vital to cover? I might, there's a few things I want to mention about some of the books we have available. Um, not so much, I think. I Matt, think that's all that I had. I think that's all that I had on my mind. Okay, I think we've got uh, uh, a good bit of stuff. Uh, uh, William, why don't you go through with your book recommendations okay. and ideas? So for the uh, for just perfectly free, and it's just a reference grammar. It's not going to teach you how to really read the language. Um, is the um, O'Connell book um, free on archive.org? There are a few places where it's missing pages. Um, so you're going to have to find another source to learn about the singular forms of the word for snake. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a good summary. It's not too terrifying. Um, what's interesting, as I said, we've talked about these preverbs, which are kind of like prepositions, and it has a nice section of those talking about what they mean independently and what they mean to a certain degree um, in composition with um, uh, verbs. Um so for people who like to come up with uh, word creation systems, it's I think it's worth looking at. Um, and tries to talk a little bit about... Uh, it, it does have a few texts. Not too many. Um, the Wikipedia article is actually not terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. It doesn't have, you know a ton of examples to look at, but it gives a good overview. Right. And, and it you know, gives a little historical background. Um, if you actually want to try to learn this language more, um, there's the layman book and just don't. <laughs> Is there a problem with that one? It's just really unfriendly. I think it's great if you want to read the story of McDotho's pig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But to actually learn the language from, I just don't see how you would do that. The the information is not laid out well. Um, really, the best book, the gold standard now, is David Stifter's um, Shangbadog. Um, it's a little bit more expensive. It's in the thirty forty range. Um, it has. There's you know, just no other way. There is no other way. It gives you lots of practice, lots of example sentences to play with that are more interesting than just the glosses, um, without overwhelming you. Um, there are cute little cartoons of sheep. Yeah, he has a pretty good sense of humor too, which I like in the exercises that he makes up, which I appreciate in a, you know, language book writer. Yeah, and it's a hard language, so if it takes you need the of sense sheep, of humor. Yeah, if it takes cartoons of sheep to help you through, um, then yes, use them. Yeah, um, and it's it's huge, lots and lots of uh, reading examples. So I think that's far the best option. Um, for anyone who's trying to learn it now. Okay. I think that's all I had to say. All right. Uh, so, any final thoughts from anyone? Old Irish is crazy. The orthography is nuts. And the phonology is maybe even worse. But it's, I don't know, it's rewarding. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting language to look at from the historical perspective. And... Mm-hmm. You could even think about, um, we mentioned that we kind of catch this mass of literature in what may be sort of a transitional period in the language. Yeah, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the literature is, um, how shall we say, corrupted uh, with Middle uh, Irish forms. Oh my well, God. Yeah. Uh, which, adds yeah, the, which adds to the joys of reading the material. But yeah, we did catch this weird spot. Right. All of this mayhem but, was going on, and that's when they wrote it all down. Yeah, but um, the reason I, I say that is, 
if you want to make a language that's like old, old Irish, that's that's cool. Lots of people like to do super complicated stuff. If you want to make a language that had a stage like this in the past, that mm-hmm. was very sort of baroque and, and um, had a lot of things going on that got settled down later, that might be an interesting thing to do with a conlang, especially if you had like a reason to have both presented in like a story or something. Someone's reading the old language and then the new language is, is uh, being spoken, you know. So there's a lot of interesting creative things you can do with um, a lot of the ideas that we pull out from looking at what Old Irish does. Yeah. Yeah, if you're looking um, for, for the Baroque, Old Irish is better than Modern Irish. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with all of that, uh, I'm going to say thank you, Matt, for uh, coming on the show. and Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, with that, I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richard.